Well, our averages are a lot better for Sunday night, aren't they? Just looking around, I think it's mostly <clears throat> our Sunday night crowd. We may be off a few, but just glad to see you back tonight. Uh, did everyone receive a handout on Christology? If you uh, did not get one, Danny's in the back, and he can give you one. Uh, any, anyone? All right, all good. <clears throat> I remember uh, back, I guess it was, it's probably, I'm not sure when, when Adrian Rogers died, but it's been a good many years ago now, but I remember uh, listening to a tribute to Dr. Rogers, and one thing they said about him pretty much as a church family was that he taught us how to love Jesus. That's pretty good, isn't it? Uh, I, I like that. Uh, if it can be said of all of us as elders before the Lord that we helped our congregations love Jesus more, then that's an awesome thing. And so when we deal with Christology, that's what we're talking about. We're talking about the study of Christ, the study of Jesus Christ. And we're going to delve into this a little bit tonight. We may have at least one follow-up to this, but uh, this will get us started tonight. Okay? All right. Looking at your handout... The study of Jesus Christ, which is the ology part, study of Christ, we can ask the question, who is Jesus Christ and what are we supposed to know about him in regard to loving him more? Uh, we certainly have to know who he is and know about him. Out in the marketplace, there are various opinions on who Jesus is and just get ready. We're approaching Easter Sunday, right? And Palm Sunday, guess what's going to be on the historical channels? Yeah. Did he actually live? Uh, you know, the quest for the historical Jesus, the Jesus seminar, all these things will uh, come forward and we'll uh, hear this, that, and the other. Uh, most of them, I guess, are repeats. But still, uh, this time of year, did he actually resurrect? What was the crucifixion like? Uh, what about his disciples? Uh, you will hear many things on TV. But I want to remind you that the only reliable source that we have to tell us about Jesus is the Word of God. It is the only reliable source in reference to the truth of concerning who he is. Now, I know there were extra biblical writers like Josephus who wrote truth regarding uh, Christ and others. But the Bible is our only reliable source. Now, there are several foundational passages that reveal to us the aspects of the doctrine of Christ like no other. There's four huge ones, and on the back of your page, you have four great Christological passages that deal with the doctrine of Christ. We're going to see two of those tonight, which would remind us that I will probably do this at least one more time to grab the other two <clears throat> great Christological passages. But when we say the term Christology, we are referring to the person of Jesus Christ, but also to the work of Jesus Christ. And this handout you have before you gives us an overview of this great doctrine. Uh, we must look at his person first. If you're looking at your page, it will be to your left hand. We see person and the ontological dimension. And don't let that word stump you. That's just a big term for the essential nature or being, or we may say the essence of Christ. Uh, the Bible reveals to us that he is the unique son of God. 
He is one person possessing a fully divine nature and at the same time possessing a fully human nature. He is 100% God and 100% man. It's like putting 100% oil in a can and 100% water in a can uh, and maintaining both, yet one is an amazing thing. He is not half God and half man or even mostly God and some man. He is fully divine and fully man. He is Jesus Christ, the Son of God. So the other question we address is, we, we deal with the two natures, yet one personality. He's not schizophrenic. He's one person, right? Fully God, fully man. And the other question we address is, what did he do? And this can be referred to, as you see there, as the functional dimension. So just get that in your mind. When we think about the person of Christ, we're dealing with two things. His essence, who he is. And then secondly, what was his function? What did he actually do in his work? His person and his work. So what does the Bible emphasize? Well, the Bible emphasizes clearly the sinless life of Christ. We, we actually forget about this sometimes, don't we? We know that Jesus came in obedience to his Father, but just think about the law's demands. Don't you love the verse? Uh, Jesus Christ is the end of the law for all who believes. So this is vitally important. Uh, Jesus Christ came in obedience and lived 100% in obedience to the law of God and never one time sinned. And so, in actuality, when you trust Christ and you're, you be, and you're regenerated, you're actually uh, obeying the law perfectly. It's just that you didn't do it, right? Uh, you are, uh, ultimately, when you trust Christ, you have obeyed the law perfectly. Why? Because Jesus Christ fulfilled the law for you. And you are putting your faith and trust in what he accomplished. So, the sinless life. Uh, I know my wife's favorite verse, I think it's 2 Corinthians 5, what, 21? Um, now, it slipped my mind, thinking about that verse. He that knew no sin became sin for us, that the very righteousness of God would be in us. That is a, a phenomenal verse of Scripture. So it reminds us of the sinless life of Christ. He that knew no sin. And I want to remind you, it's easy for us to think about the impeccability of Christ or uh, His nature and say, well, it was easy for Him because He was fully God. I want to remind you that He experienced every temptation that you have yet without sin, and he did so fully in human nature. Don't lessen that truth by thinking about him being fully divine because the purposes of the writing of the text when it says temptations were given to him and were common to all men is to remind us that he actually obeyed the law perfectly in human form. And that is an amazing truth. So the sinless life of Christ is one aspect or dimension. And then we have... His vicarious death and resurrection. Vicarious meaning dying in the stead on behalf of others and doing so willingly. And so the aspects of that vicarious death uh, has to do with great theological terms like atonement, which has overtones over from where? The Old Testament in the Day of Atonement, Yom Kippur, and uh, some theologians have broken that down precisely for us at one moment 
atonement to remind us of the once for all sacrifice of Christ that he atoned for our sin. Propitiation has in it the uh, obedience to the law of God in order to turn away the wrath of God against sin. So propitiation does have in it the element of the wrath of God. It's not enough just to believe expiation, which is not even on here, uh, but it's, it's, a, it's a reality. How do we see propitiation and expiation? Well, expiation is the removal of guilt. Propitiation is the turning away of wrath. You understand that both of those were present uh, on the night the death angel uh, passed over. When I see the blood, expiation, covering, I will pass over, propitiation. Isn't it awesome to look at the word of God and think about that? So both terms are there. I will cover your sin. And it's the only way it can be covered through the blood of the Lamb. Without the shedding of blood, there's no remission. And yet I will pass over, meaning I turn my wrath away from uh, destruction and death uh, in order to give life because of the blood. So satisfaction is another term for propitiation. Uh, Reconciliation, uh, to have peace with God. We've been reconciled to God through the Lord Jesus Christ. Substitution. Huge theological term. He died in our stead. He literally took our place. He died as our substitute. And surely that harkens back to vicarious death. Justification to be declared righteous. Don't don't mistake this doctrine. It is forensic. Right? You are not made righteous. You're still a sinner. Now before the Father in glory... When he sees you, he sees his son, which inevitably is acceptability and righteousness. But to be justified is to be declared righteous. You're you're given uh, righteousness being declared to your account by Jesus Christ, even though you remain in a state of being a sinner. That is an amazing gift from God. You can't earn it. Uh, You can't beg for it. You can't barter for it. It is a gift from God. So that was the huge Doctrine that swung the Reformation, uh, you know, in the right direction. Whereas Catholics thought that you could be justified by works or a bloodless mass or whatever that might be. Martin Luther, in reading the scripture, figured out, here's a guy that was a professor and he was teaching the book of Romans and he was a lost man. And as he began to study Romans 1, 16, he began to see that salvation is a free gift from God. That you got, how can God remain just and and also be the justifier of men? Well, there's only one way, and that's through the Lord Jesus Christ that we are justified. Redemption, to purchase by paying a price uh, or to redeem back. Uh, Ransom, same terminology, but Scripture says he was a ransom for many, paid that price. Sacrifice, example. Don't think by looking at the word example, you think, well, Jesus was just a good example for us to follow. We're not meaning that. Per se, because if he's not your savior, all the examples in the world don't help you. But what we are saying is that his, his, his sacrifice, his obedience to the Father, uh, we walk in his steps, according to 1 Peter, as an example for us to live life. And then sinless life, vicarious death, and then bodily resurrection. Is, that's what we're anticipating, celebrating on Resurrection Sunday on April the 12th. Okay, any questions so far on those two things, his person and his work? 
Anybody have a question? Uh, I would remind you that this, of course, those seven or eight things or ten things, it, will, it would not exhaust everything for us in His passion. When we say the passion of Christ, what are we referring to? Yes, the redemptive plan, uh, especially leading up to that Thursday night, Friday, Saturday, Lord's Day, resurrection. That's what we, when we're referring to His passion, that's what we're, we are referring to. But there, of course, are many more terms we could pull out, but those are the ones that are most important in the Word. Okay? All right, now, theological approaches to Christology. If you look down at the bottom of your page, there is the philosophical implications of it. Now, you certainly can study the person and work of Christ philosophically, or the study of wisdom in that sense, of trying to figure out what was actually in the life, death, burial, and resurrection of Christ. And then there's, of course, the speculation group that are going to speculate everything and say that it, whatever, make up. You know, the one popular group was the Jesus Seminar, the quest for the historical Jesus, and what that ends up being is just a total deconstruction, uh, demythologizing all of Scripture and saying that it's just a hoax and wasn't true. Uh, and we could deal, and we will, actually talk one night about resurrection and about all the theories that are out there, the swoon theory, uh, the lost tomb theory, the disciples stole the body theory. Y'all ever heard all these, right? There's really only one theory that holds water, and that's the fact that he came up forth from the grave, right? And, uh, and I want to remind you that he didn't come forth from the grave to get out. He came forth so you could look in, right? Because he could have done it any way he wanted to, but he came forth from the grave. So there's the philosophical implication and speculation. There's the systematic analysis or synthesis, meaning we talk about theology, you know, preachers and scholars and everybody else will take the Bible and try to systematize theology. And ultimately, so you got handles to think about. Uh, and if you were ever went to seminary or you ever went to Bible college, uh, I know some of you got a four-year degree in something other than pastoral ministers or whatever. But if you went to a Christian school, then there's a good chance you took theology. And that was to help you think theologically in those parameters. And so a systematic approach to theology is kind of what's uh, at work in the Baptist faith and message, in other words. That's kind of a combination of creedalism for us to know what we believe, but not exactly. There are theological principles given in your Baptist faith and message that, that help us. You know, when we think about people who are Arminian in their theology, that's a systematic approach to the way you view the Bible. If you think more Calvinistically or Reformed, uh, which there are some nuances there as well, then, then it's, that's a system. But I want to remind you something. You're not saved by Calvinism or Arminianism. You're saved by Jesus Christ and the gospel. Okay? Those systems can break down. What the Word of God gives us is what we stick to. Not systems, not words, uh, unless they're biblical terms such as gospel and salvation and Christ. So, I just tell you that uh, to say that we can analyze what's taught in the Bible about Jesus and we can come up with a systematic understanding. There's nothing wrong with that. Thirdly, you've got the historical creeds and confessions. You understand that Arianism was a goal uh, to demean the person of Christ. Um, and then you had councils 
and you had creeds, uh, you had major, huge, uh, like worldwide uh, councils that came together and were arguing over the person of Christ. Was he fully God? Was he fully man? Was he, uh, was he created by the Father? And, it, and these things went on for years and years and years. You can study all this historically. And you can come up with an understanding through creeds and confessions. Apostolic creed, all kind of different things, okay? And then we have biblical exegesis or exposition. And that's what preachers are supposed to do, right? We're supposed to preach the Bible. And so that is what our primary foundation is. Is that uh, although the church has believed certain things for 2,000 years, and that is certainly good, and you ought to study that, but what we ought to be most concerned with is what does the Bible tell us about Jesus Christ? And I provided for you what I believe scholars would agree that are the four big Christological passages. And we can gain overarching perspectives by hitting the high points of what is taught in these texts. So, John 1, make your way there. John chapter 1 is what we refer to as... Uh, verses 1 through 18, we refer to that as John's prologue. And in those verses, he informs us that Jesus Christ is the God of the Incarnation. And that's important for you to underscore. He's the God of the Incarnation. Allow me to read what we would call the three hinge verses. There are three of them. Verse 1, verse 14, and verse 18 to keep us from reading every verse. Notice the Bible. In the beginning was the Logos. And the Logos was with God and the Word. Logos was God. Verse 1. Okay, verse 14. The Bible says, And the Word, Logos, became flesh and dwelt among us. And we have seen His glory. Glory as of the only begotten, the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. And verse 18, no one has ever seen God, the only God who is at the Father's side. He has made him known. So the word was literally, here's the, here's the translation, face to face with God. Contrary to what the Jehovah Witnesses say, we refer to them as JWs. They insert an article, a God but the original text is clear. The word is Jesus was God. Period. J.W.'s think to claim that the Father is God and the Son is God is to believe in polytheism. However, we know that the doctrine of the Holy Trinity upholds that there is but one God in three persons. Yet this one God exists in three persons who are co-equal and co-eternal with one another. So I guess, in fact, the JWs are actually the ones that are polytheists, right? Because if they see God, the Father, as maybe the big God, and a little God, the God the Son, as smaller, they actually are the ones who are polytheists, right? Uh, but just keep that in mind when you're dealing with Jehovah's Witnesses. They do not believe that the Son of God is the Son of God the way you believe it, okay? They believe He was lesser, created, uh, and not equal with God the Father, so basically, one God of one essence and another smaller God of another essence is what Jehovah's Witnesses will believe, and they're guilty of polytheism. 
Now, just in case you missed how clear verse 1 is, again, note verse 14. The Word became flesh. And then in verse 18, no one has seen the Father, seen God at any time, but the one at the Father's side has made him known. Note what verse 2 says about Jesus in regard to the work of creation. If you flip over, if you're on the back page, Christ is the God of incarnation, the Word of God, uh, Logos, doctrine, the Word. But notice what the Word says in verse 2 about Jesus and His work in creation. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through Him. And without Him was not anything made that was made. Is that not staggering? And this is, of course, connecting. There's no antecedent change. We're referring to the Word that did this. Now, to a Jew who made the world... God did, right? Yet here John says, Jesus made everything. So who is Jesus? God, right? Um, Colossians 1 says that Jesus made everything. And without him, nothing exists or can hold together. Uh, He is therefore the God of Genesis chapter 1. In the beginning... God. And, of course, you note the similarities with John's prologue, verse 1, John 1, 1, and Genesis 1, 1. But that's exactly what John is saying, that Jesus Christ is the sovereign God of creation that's given to us in Genesis chapter 1. The unique thing about John's prologue is this term, logos. Have you ever wondered about that? The divine rationale of God. Why? Why would John choose a word in the Greek, logos? Well, uh, logos was a word that could be used that Greeks and Hebrews could identify with. Now think about what John's doing in his, as John the Evangelist, as he's writing the book of John. Remember, John is not one of the synoptics. The synoptic gospels, similar, uh, synonymous in material, would be Matthew, Mark, and Luke. Because 90% of everything found in them is synonymous. However, John's gospel is 90% unique to to itself. y'all know that? You do now, right? And so John's audience and why he is writing is for a particular audience. And thus, he's writing to Greeks and Hebrews. So, to a Hebrew, Logos was the word by which God made everything. If you read Genesis 1, 2, and 3, how many times do you hear it said, And God said... Right, And God said, and the Lord said, so that is the principle of logos. God is giving his word, and when God speaks, what happens? He has creative ability. He is a, he's performing what he says. In Genesis 1-1, and God said, his very word is the creative agency. So this would have gripped the mind of a Hebrew. In the Greek world, logos was the impersonal reality that was behind, of all, behind all creation. It was everything was held together by the logos in the Greek way of thinking. Philo had a logos. And he followed in the steps of someone named Plato. And said that the logos is up there and out there and far above. And we can never really know the logos. John comes along and says, you're partly correct. Right? Uh, You can never know him by your own ingenuity. 
Uh, you can never come to where He is. You can never understand Him. However, our God has come near. And He is a divine Logos, but He's a person, right? Uh, and this is un unbelievable. The Logos is not a force like uh, philosophers believe, but actually the divine Logos is a person. And it's the person of the Lord Jesus Christ. And secondly, the Logos up there has now come down here. Our God was made flesh, dwelt among us. Just think of the power in those words. The Word became flesh and you can know Him, but not because you reach up to Him. Salvation or understanding God does not work synergistically. Where you stick your hand up, He sticks His down. It works monergistically. God is the one and it's Him alone that's coming down to meet His people. No amens? God alone is coming down to work redemption in the heart of people. And so, what a word to bridge cultures and to spread the gospel through evangelism. To the Hebrew mind, they understood exactly what that meant. That's the creative agency of God. And then for the, he, for the, for the Greek-speaking, thinking people, it puts a person with a speculative thing of saying, well, something up there is working. Well, that's obvious. They would have known back then that evolutionary process didn't exist. Back in their day, they knew full well that there had to be a grand mover behind everything in this world. So they just couldn't figure it out. They didn't know the Lord. And so they figure, hey, there's some kind of impersonal deity out there. And John makes it clear that this God has come near. The only God that exists has come to our level. He's come down to us. He is transcendent. You can't figure him out. You can't reach him. You can't touch him. But the transcendent has come down imminently in the person and work of Jesus Christ. So... We see here the relationship between the Father and the Son. He emphasizes His work in salvation. You see it on your chart. He's the, the relationship to the Father, the Word. 1 in 14, radiant glory as of the only begotten of the Father. Only begotten does not mean uh, creative. It means first in privilege and rank. In other words, there's no other like the Son of God. He's not created. Uh, obviously, verse 1 takes that away. He was with God and was God. And so we just look at his relationship to his father, which is vitally important for us to think about. Again, his divine work in creation of all things, chapter 1, verse 3, of life, verse 4. And so... We see here the relationship between the Father, His emphasis in the work of salvation. Listen to verses 12 and 13. The Bible says, But to all who did receive Him, who believed in His name, He gave them the right to become children of God. Check it out. Who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but God, that's something that we ought to all think about, that our salvation, you know, in our day, we make salvation out to be about the people. But in actuality, salvation is about the God who saves. And boy, does that ever killing America. It's ever killing the American church because we glory more in self. We see salvation as mine and something that God has given me. And, and to a certain degree, that's okay, as long as you don't let it cloud your understanding of salvation. Salvation is the work of God, not of man. It can't be accomplished by your flesh. It can't be accomplished by your will. 
It is a work of God to redeem sinners. And finally, this text emphasizes his divine nature. So John tells us that Jesus Christ is the God of the incarnation. That's one of them. All right, I got 15 more minutes. Any questions on John 1, 1 through 18, which we call John's prologue, which teaches us that Jesus Christ is the God of the incarnation. No questions? Y'all are such good learners. Y'all got it all. Okay, turn over to the book of Philippians. This, in fact, is what our ladies, uh, they're studying this on, uh, well, multiple nights of the week, right? I think there were 135 women that signed up. And I don't know how many are doing it now, because there's always a fall off. You Baptists are all alike. You start off with grand aspirations of completing a Bible study, and you quit after one week. I get that. But there's a lot of stuff that goes into that. I get it. But we often refer to this passage as the kenosis passage, the emptying of Christ and what that actually means. But whereas John 1 is Christ is the God of the incarnation, Philippians 2 would be Christ is the God of humiliation. Okay? Whereas the emphasis of word, wording, was the logos of God in John 1, when you get to Philippians 2, it's this term form, F-O-R-M, which in the Greek is morphe, which you get your word metamorphosis, of which you should automatically have thought of the transfiguration. Did you do that? Because that's what happened when Jesus was metamorphosed before, uh, who was it, Peter, James, and John? And you remember they say, let's make booths equal, Moses? And then God, the Father says, listen to my son. So, Philippians 2, 5 through 11. Let's read that text together. The Bible says, Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who though he was in the form, morphe, of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped. Wasn't cheapened in any kind of way, his equality with God, but emptied himself... By taking the form. There it is again, morphe. So, quickly. The form of God means identity, personhood. He is God. But then you see morphe as form. So really, uh, of a servant. So in actuality, there's never been a time when the Son of God was not a, not a servant. Isn't that amazing? That same term, form, is used for servant and equality with God. The Bible says, Being born in the likeness of men. And being found in human form... He humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on the cross. Notice that term, verse 7, but emptied himself. And then in verse 8, humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on the cross. Therefore God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name. So that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of the Father. Two clearly uh, concise divisions. His humiliation would be verses 5 through 8, and 9 through 11 would be exaltation. So, did you know, David probably remembers this in school, did you know that this particular text, some believe, was an early Christian hymn? that they actually sang this. It actually, in English, has a rhythmic force to it anyway. But the fact is, they would sing about his humiliation 
And then they would sing about his exaltation. And that's what we have here. So it breaks down again. Two major divisions. Humiliation. Exaltation. And in the former text we were talking about the logos of God. But here we talk about the form of God. Is that important for the function? Remember we're, we're dealing with Christological passages to figure out who he is and what he's accomplished. Well, we see that clearly in John 1, but here we also see it in Philippians 2. So the term form is the Greek word again, morphe. We get morphology from that. It is the same word that Matthew used to describe the transfiguration. And again, that word means essence of something. So whatever the Father is, the Son is. The same essence. Y'all see it? That's what form means. It means the inner reality of something. In other words, Christ, the Son of God, existed in the very essence and glory and nature and reality as God. Whatever it is that makes God, God, Jesus is. Okay? He's the very essence, nature, and form of God. You could not take something from Him that is His. In other words, when we start dealing with the term emptied Himself... We're not talking about taking something away from Christ. In other words, God can never cease to be, uh, can never be less than God. So when you see the word emptied there, it doesn't mean a subtraction of deity. Uh, for some people say, well, when Jesus left heaven and came to earth, then his emptying was some of his Godhead. No, that's bogus. You can't take God away from God. Okay? So the emptying does not have anything to do with deity. Jesus did not cease to be totally equal to his father when he came to this earth. Okay? So, therefore, he emptied himself. That's the nature as well of, a, of the form of a servant. That was his nature. He became a servant in order to honor and obey his father and pay our sin debt. He went all the way, according to this te text, to the death on the cross. Now, let's think about that term emptied. It's important to look at. It's important for our Christology. Jesus, again, he could have never surrendered his, de his deity, yet for a temporary time, he laid aside his glory in order to add humanity. So emptying is not the subtraction of deity. It is the addition of you and me. That's humiliation for God. Right? Right? Well, it was humiliation. The humiliation started when he left the council of heaven and the halls of eternity, period, to come down to this earth. And then you see his humiliation uh, being born as a baby, a human being. Uh, we, uh, we often think of humiliation only at the cross. No, that's not true. The fact that he came in the form of a servant at all is humiliation. So I think when we look at John 17.5, we can actually look in... Uh, to the in, kind of give insight to the emptying of himself or this particular passage chapter 17 of John's gospel verse 5 if you remember I quoted chapter 17 verse 4 this morning but listen to verse 5 of John 17 I glorified you on earth having accomplished the work that you gave me to do and now, Father, glorify me in your own presence with the glory I had with you before the world existed. So there was a temporary laying aside of the glory of the Lord, in essence, to 
add humanity, which gave that sense of humiliation to the Son of God who never knew anything but perfect harmony with His Father, and yet He took on our sinful flesh. And as Hebrews says, it was by necessity that He identified with us in order to die for us. So the incarnation was not subtraction of deity, it was addition of humanity. He emptied Himself, became a man, and He did, all, he did it all the way up to obedience to death, even death on the cross. Don't we have an awesome Savior? And verse 9 highlights the son's exaltation by ascribing to him the name Lord in verse 11. Paul is ascribing deity to the Lord Jesus Christ. Lord in the New Testament is the equivalent to Yahweh God in the Old Testament. He humiliated himself in order to appease the wrath of God against our sin and to save us from our sins. So you see clearly that he is the God of the incarnation and Christ is the God of humiliation. He came as the divine Logos, Logos and also he, he came in the form of God, meaning He is God. So just tracking through, I probably hit all that. Church Him, relationship to the Father, set aside His divine glory, did not set aside His divine nature, and His divine work is salvation in emptying Himself, becoming obedient to death, even death on the cross, and it also highlights His divine nature. Verse 6, verse 9, and verse 11. 